Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to helping business owners prepare for exit so you can maximize value and exit on your terms. This is the Exit Insights Podcast presented by Succession Plus. I'm Daryl Bates-Brownsword and today I'm talking to Nate Lind. Hey, welcome, Nate, and uh, thanks for joining us. You've got thanks a fantastic story to share. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, uh, I've been on both sides of buying and selling and uh, yeah, I'd love to share my insights with, uh, with your audience. Great. Hey, Nate, why don't we start? Because I, I love talking to people who have sold their business and, and often they've, they've got a story that, you know, they, 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 what they learned so much along the way. And there, there's so much in, in that journey of, of going through an exit that they just didn't anticipate. And, and that's, that's the reason we started the podcast in the first place. To bring yeah. all those stories to light. Definitely. So well, you, you had a technology business, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Um, I was an e-commerce entrepreneur. I uh, I was selling vitamins around the world, and uh, back then, this I started this in 2012. There wasn't a Shopify. Amazon wasn't quite the way it is now. It was really hard to figure out like how much money you were making, how much money you were spending on advertising. Uh, so I built this reporting system that kind of gave me like a management report. It was like a running P and L uh, that daily was showing me how much I was spending, how much I was making. Um, and I ended up getting approached by the shopping cart that I was connected to, that I was a, a client of. And uh, as a strategic opportunity, they looked to acquire my technology. And we worked out a deal. And uh, I got you know, a pretty handsome, uh, pretty handsome amount of money over, spread out over a period of time. And uh, yeah, that was kind of my first exit. I, was, I didn't even know that what I had was going to be worth value to somebody. And they approached me directly. I, we ended up working out a, a smooth deal, and then uh, it really like kind of wet my whistle for mergers and acquisitions. I'd had experience on the buy side ahead of that. I've I've looked at buying businesses for a while, but selling it and going through the whole process um, really encouraged me to take a deeper look at mergers and acquisitions. And then fast forward uh, five or six years, I became a business broker, and now I assist others uh, doing the same thing. So, so the complete circle, so to speak. But but you you glossed over something that that I kind of want to pick on. Um, you were selling vitamins, but the 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 business you sold, you know, that they weren't really interested in your product by the sounds of it. They they're interested in your technology that that you prepared to help you understand and, and monitor where your business was at. Is yeah. that right? They you know, yeah. What what's happened to the vitamin business now? Is that uh, still going, or they just dropped it? Um, well, so they, yeah, they only bought the intellectual property related to the software that I built because they were a shopping cart. So they didn't want to get into the mix of like buying and selling product. They didn't have any inventory. They didn't have any warehouses or any of that sort of stuff. Um, I didn't know that what I had with the vitamin entity was of value. Um, it was really kind of a cash flow. Uh, sort of business. Yeah. Uh, it was a lot of paid media. I had a private label brand. I didn't. I hadn't privately, you know, uh, contracted or privately formulated my own vitamins. I, I had a um, basically. I was marketing an off-the-shelf vitamin that I was buying from someone else, private label. So I just didn't really think that that business had uh, an, an upside to it of an exit value. Come to find out now, they definitely do. I didn't know that back then. I didn't realize that until after I became a broker. So I didn't even bother to pursue an exit for that brand. Um, I had, you know, a nice exit with the software. 
the as the business was going well, selling vitamins, I was just cash flowing the business. And then I really just had kind of a change of heart. I wanted to do something different. I had a, a new passion I wanted to pursue, and that was doing events. I, I did trade shows for a number of years for e-commerce entrepreneurs. And then that kind of segued into becoming a business broker. So I ended up just moving on to different passions as opposed to exiting the vitamins itself. But but using this as a case study, I, I yeah, and forgive me for 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 being analytical here, but uh, I, I find it fascinating as 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 the business that was running as as a complete entity had so many different assets that were valuable and different, and those different assets would have been valuable you know, in hindsight to different people. Um, and yeah, maybe you could have sold two or three chunks of the business and uh, yeah, and, and played and, and had a lot more fun there. But um, the, I love the fact that you know you'd built your own software platform. You'd, you'd built it to help manage your own business, and you know we tell the story regularly around you know to really increase the value of your business. You need systems. You need processes. You need um, a consistent way of doing things. What you want is predictability. You provided some predictability for your own business. Someone came along and said, "Oh, hang on, that's really nice. We haven't seen anything like that before." That's exactly what happened. Yeah, the, the the shopping cart they needed some some better reporting. They had a competitor that was gaining ground on them, and uh, they just didn't have you know their clients didn't have any way to figure out whether they're making any money or not. So they were losing clients as a result of not having the reporting that they needed to be able to help their clients figure out is, are things working or are things yeah. not working. And if your clients can't figure out how to make stuff work and they don't go, like they can't stay in business, your business is going to suffer as a result of that. So you brought up the point about maybe parting things out. Like here, you know, in, in, uh, in America, we talk about like parting out a car, so to speak. Like I sold the software. I probably could have sold, I, oh, I definitely could have if I hit the, the market right. The, the cash flow of the vitamin business, uh, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into it at some point, but like the, the value of these online digital businesses, uh, e-commerce businesses is ongoing cash flow. And they have to be sold when the cash flow is either stable or going up. I had a lot of fluctuations in my business. One year we made, I know we sold like $36 million. The next year it was like 12. And then it was like, this was up and down and all over the place. Um, that's really hard to sell, but if you have a business that is, it's got like a nice kind of stable trend, uh, of its sales, then, and it's going up in particular, if it's going up, it's worth a ton of money if it's at least two years old. Yeah. And it's predictable in that case. So if it's predictable, there's, there's low risk for the buyer. But if, as you say, if it's all over the place, well, then they're going, what am I buying exactly? I, I can only value it on, on the low years, not the high years. That's exactly right. Buyers in, in our marketplace, they're looking for businesses that are growing cash flow, and then they will penalize it based on the risk of uh, its its lack of cash flow. Or uh, if it's all over the place, they'll also penalize it based on you know a variety of factors. I get into some pretty detailed uh, business valuations as part of my intake process with clients. Um, you know, I'll go through their. Uh, we we do all of our valuations are based on a multiple of earnings. We don't do anything that's based on a multiple of revenue. Uh, for lower middle market digital businesses, if it's on, if it's a privately held company and it's under five hundred million dollars, it's going to be valued on a multiple of of earnings, and then it'll be, uh, the multiple. Uh, I've got twenty seven factors that I go through, and I've got a whole spreadsheet that I'll do with the valuation, and it's got uh, you know factors that increase the value of it, uh, and then also factors that decrease the value of it that I get into. I guess it'll be a little complicated, but uh, that's just the way that the M and A market works, you know, for these digital and internet businesses. 
businesses that are under $500 million that are privately owned. And yeah, and, and already you're exploding the myth that um, it's, it's 10 times earning or, or five times earning. It's a, it's a fixed number. You, you, you've suggested there that you've got a whole lot of factors that, that influence the, the multiple number of a business because yeah, I'm talking to business owners all the time and you know, in different industries and they go, well, the multiple for my industry is, is X, whether it be three, five or 30. And I go, is it fixed? And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I go, okay. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's, it's not exactly. fixed. Yeah, anyone who, who looks at the industry multiple and says, that's how much my business is worth, um, you're really dis- you're really hurting yourself. Because there, there's two things that'll happen. If you mess up the value of your business, if you either shoot too high, then you'll have buyers that just totally ghost you. Because the M&A market, it's not, like, uh, it's not a used car dealership. People don't tend to come in and lowball you. So you can't go like crazy high, ask for $100 million when your business is worth $2 million. They'll just laugh at you. They'll never respond to you or the broker. And that actually hurts my credibility. I won't list businesses for crazy multiples because it just it jeopardizes my credibility as a as a professional and a broker to be able to bring deals to the marketplace that can actually get closed. Uh, I'm not doing press releases to make somebody feel good about their valuation. Um, that's just, that doesn't pay me. So I don't have time for that. And then on the, on the flip side, if you, if you price your business too low, then you're leaving a ton of money at the table because buyers certainly aren't going to say, Oh, you're worth more than that. I'll pay you more. That's never happened. (laughs) So, so it's a really, it's a really fascinating story because, um, you know, the multiple is just one part of the equation, right? It's it's multiplying something, and that something is is normally a revenue or a profit number. And again, we need we need business owners to be aware of what the number is that they're multiplying by, because when it's a profit number, is it EBIT? Is it EBITDA? Is it you know what's the you know the number? And is it adjusted accounts? You know, so you know, and then then once we've got this, let's call it the standard industry multiplier. Well. Well, buyers and sophisticated buyers have a whole lot of um, assumptions around what's in place in your business, what your business looks like. If you don't have all those things in place, they're going to come in and go, well, it's not that number. You know, you, you called it discount. I think there's a whole lot of things that are going to bring that multiple down. So this is what you need to do to prepare your business and get it exit ready so it's ready for someone like yourself to take it to the market and represent it in its best light, I guess. That's right. And and to your point earlier on, you were talking about, is it EBIT? Is it EBITDA? We, we primarily use seller discretionary earnings. So we're going to take the entire seller benefit. So anything that it could be, uh, you know, we'll add back in, um, you know, so in some cases, their salaries, uh, if they're not working full time on the business, if there's multiple partners, we may be able to add back in, you know, one of the two salaries. Um, if there's any travel expenses, um, if, there, if someone has a lease for a Tesla, you know, like all that sort of stuff, we'll put all of that back in because we're still working yeah. with a lot of smaller businesses that they're using their company for a lot of deductions. And um, we'll add all that in. And then that will be the base number that we'll use for the multiple. And to your point, yeah, there, we don't we don't usually take an industry multiple. I do a comparable based analysis. So I'm going to look at other, since we've, we sell 300 of these a year, we've got a thousand, you know, 3,000 or so to look at. I'll go back and look at, you know, the specific business type that we've sold before in the past, where we were getting offers, what it actually closed at, what the structure of it was, 
so I can get into all of that. And, and we, we hold that information privately. It's actually confidential. We can't share that publicly because of each engagement we have with our clients, just like, you know, anyone that, you know, is looking to sell, you don't want your information just blasted how much you sold it for. It's like saying how much money you've got in the bank. Come sue me. No, nobody wants that. Um, so we can't share those specifics, but I can look across the company to see where all of these uh, valuations have, have, have occurred and what these closings have occurred. So I'll take the seller discretionary earnings Earnings, I will figure out a multiple based on the comparables of what's going on out there. And then the, the third step is what's, what capital is the buyer going to bring into the deal? And what does that capital partner assess as a valuation? So it, there's multiple parts that are moving here. And we, we will usually list and, and sell at the multiple uh, based on comparables. But sometimes we have to close at whatever the bank fi will finance. This is just like real estate. You know, you'll you may list a house for five hundred thousand dollars, but if it only gets appraised for four hundred thousand, and the buyer can only buy it for four hundred thousand, you may have you may have to negotiate, or maybe we've got to come up with something more creative on where's the difference between five hundred and four hundred thousand um, dollars. That's kind of how this all plays out in M and A as well. Well, exactly. You know, I you know, a lot of people, you know, they go around, they go, well, here's, here's how to value a business. And there's a lot of academic, technical ways to value a business. But at the end of the day, a business is worth what the buyer pays for it, you know, because that's the cold, hard money they put on the table. And as you say, they can put deals and structures together. So, Nate, you focus on internet, you know, um, ongoing revenue, technical-based businesses, which um, are a little different to the let's call it the old-fashioned, you know, bricks and mortar type of businesses where where everyone's based and they produce a good or a service and and you know a traditional type of business. From a valuation perspective, you know, how, how different are they to sell? How how easier are they? You know, we we hear these wild stories of you know the multiples being ten times what they are in traditional businesses. Are they easier to sell? Is, is that true that the ten times multiple? What, what yeah. Can you tell us? Let me get into some specifics. Um, again, you know, it's it is very unique and individualized per business. A business that's five years old that has five hundred clients that's very diverse in its revenue that has annual contracts. Let's say they're providing a service like digital marketing, or maybe they're you know maybe they have some component of, of brick and mortar and online. Um, it, it can be wildly different from a company that's only a year old that's like barely making things going. But generally speaking, some things that are we see across the board is we're we're always valuing the businesses as a multiple of seller discretionary earnings. So that's that's just the net earnings or net profit of a company, never on uh, on the gross revenue of the company. We can later do a calculation to figure out what that is, but it it varies wildly. In some cases it may be half you know half a multiple you know half. Um, half a revenue uh, or a gross revenue of, of trailing 12 months. Sometimes it might be one and a half or two. I don't usually see them much over two as in terms of a multiple of revenue. But again, if once we get down into a multiple of seller discretionary earnings, it's calculated based on the previous 12 months. So we'll take the previous 12 months of earnings. We'll multiply that. Could be anywhere between you know one uh, to five, maybe six. Uh, if it's under uh, $10 million in trailing 12 months earnings, once you get over $10 million, uh, your multiple goes up. Uh, it can go up quite a bit, actually. A lot of our buyers are buying companies that are in the $1 million to $3 million in trailing 12 months seller discretionary earnings, and their goal is to get it to $10 million and then sell it for 8x, 9x of earnings. So that's that's kind of the goal of a lot of these buyers. 
those are some pretty general terms that apply for everybody that's on our marketplace. But when it comes to the specific multiples and valuations and stuff, I just I have to roll up my sleeves and spend about an hour with the client and talk with them about their business. Okay. Oh, uh, I was going to mention about uh, the ease of selling them. Sorry, I almost forgot about that. Uh, one of the reasons why we sell digital businesses is they're way easier to sell than brick and mortar businesses because there's so many more buyers. Uh, we don't have to worry about you know a buyer that's in London or in uh, New York City. You know, if the business is in London or New York City, you're kind of constrained to a buyer who's right there too, uh, which could be a challenge. So for us, we, most of our businesses can be run uh, remotely. They have either staff or teams or, uh, or contractors or infrastructure that can be managed remotely, especially since the pandemic. So many people uh, started moving to Zoom and using digital interfaces to communicate with their teams. And now the beauty of that is you can transition that business to a buyer. That if you're in San Francisco and they're in New York City, it doesn't matter. So they are much easier for us to sell because of that. And because the breadth of the buyer marketplace is massive. We have 175,000 buyers on our email list, over a million buyers, eyeballs looking at our marketplace, our website, our Facebook account, our, our other social media, and then where we syndicate our listings elsewhere too. So it's, okay, big. So it's a, lot easy, a lot easier to sell because you don't have to be in a physical location. You can be anywhere to sell it. It truly is a global market. It is typically an online service, so there's no, there's nothing to move. It's it's just value through the service offering and what have you. If it's an e-commerce business and there's a there's some infrastructure like a fulfillment center, usually that's right. outsourced. So a third-party logistics company is moving, like they're receiving shipments from. I don't know, China, Mexico, Vietnam, wherever it is. And then they're picking and packing into smaller boxes and then, you know, shipping the, the smaller boxes out the door. Like that's, and that's, that's very easy to transition to a buyer. They want that. If someone's uh, receiving all of their products by pallets, like in their garage at their house, that's, <laughs> that's a hard one. We have to move that out usually to a third party logistics company before a buyer would, would take serious interest. And scale it up a bit more first, I imagine. Yep. Okay. So we've got that. We've what's the sort of time frame from from someone having a nibble you know, to to closing a deal for, on, on that sort of industry? Yeah, they can move pretty quick. Um, so from the time that the, the business is listed and buyers are expressing interest in it, uh, usually it takes um, you know a week or so to, to formalize a call. I'm doing some pre-screening. Um, we have more buyers than we have sellers. Um, and uh, our market, we, we have um, uh, a couple of different levels of, of confidentiality. So the first thing is a, a buyer has to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Once they've signed that, they'll get a, a, an offer memorandum and the financials uh, in order for them to get a phone call. Typically, I need to get proof of funds or some some more financial information from them. Do they have the ability to actually close on the deal? Um, once that's been determined, then I'll arrange a call for them. Uh, that usually that can take anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of weeks, depending on how quick people are communicating back and forth. But from the time that a business is marketed until when we're starting to see offers, can be anywhere from two weeks to two or three months. And then um, the due diligence process, I'm sure is probably similar across the board. Um, if there's an SBA loan or financing, it tends to take a little bit longer, usually add another month or two to it because of the other the, the formality of bank financing and the hoops that the buyer has to jump through. 
but if there's not financing like that, or if it's uh, a capital partner or lending partner the buyer has a pre-existing relationship with and they can close quickly, we can see deals close as quickly as 45 days to 60 days. But I'd say on average, it's probably closer to you know 90 days to 120 days from, uh, from offer going live to closing. So you know, just on a big generalization scale, that's quite a bit quicker than traditional type businesses that, that, that we're seeing and, and hearing about. That's my understanding. I think that the average, the the Association of Business Brokers published something recently about like the average transaction takes about a year. We don't we don't take that long. Our, ours is probably half that. I'd say you know four to six months is is more realistic for what we're experiencing. Okay, so for business owners running a, a an online e commerce or, or or some sort of online service business, what are some of the mistakes they make when they're when they're starting to think about getting their business to market that you guys see? <laughs> The biggest mistake they make is they didn't get their financials sorted out. Like they didn't hire a bookkeeper. I've got a client right now. They've got a, a $5 million a year business and they don't, they like, they haven't put all their stuff in QuickBooks or zero. Um, or they, I've actually, I take that back. They hadn't prepared or sent anything to me uh, until just recently. And now they're saying that they have it. <laughs> so I, I'm having to like, you know, I'm having to search for a needle in a haystack. The number one challenge I have is uh, entrepreneurs get excited about a business. They start making money with the business and they tend to focus on the money-making aspect of the business, not on the documentation, not on the bookkeeping and not on the financial records. Um, that is the biggest like trip up. That's the you know the biggest landmine most of my clients make. Um, that surprisingly, uh, they just a lot of them don't do. You have to get your 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 uh, your business set up on QuickBooks or Zero or another professional accounting system. You have to have a bookkeeper who is entering every single expense and revenue and itemizing it and categorizing it into your chart of accounts. You have to do it every month. You have to get it updated every month. You have to reconcile it to your bank accounts every month. And then you have to share that with your business broker or your exit planner. And if you're not doing that, you will not sell your business for more than chump change. It, it's just, it's not professional. You're, you're laughed at and mocked behind the scenes, whether you know it or not, by buyers who are like, what is this idiot doing? You, if you can't spend 500 bucks to get a bookkeeper and, um, and a CPA and someone to like go through your, your documentation and, and make sure that you're sorted out, you, you don't have any business in selling. Um, that's just the, you know, the ridiculous aspect of it. And I'm sorry to be a hard hitter about that, but I had all the time I'm dealing with this. It's just people who don't have their bookkeeping sorted. That's the number one mistake you can make. So, so what you're saying to me, Nate, is, is the old message of trust me, it does make that much money. What is just not believable? Is that, is that what surely you can't Not believable something? at all. You're completely laughed. Most of the time I get ghosted. This is what happens. When I was a newer broker, I took any listing. I was trying to learn to cut my teeth on it. I took some clients who didn't have any record, uh, didn't have any records. Uh, they didn't have any income statements or balance sheets. And so if you're, this is, that's actually standard if it's a little business. If you're talking like yeah. oh, under $100,000, you know, un, oh, under $200,000, maybe, you know, you can get away with that, but you, they're still going to get into your bank statements. They're going to get into all of your stuff and, th and they have to figure it out. So they're going, they're not just going to pay you without, you know, verifying this information. But if you want to have a sizable deal, you want a quarter million dollars or more, you want a million dollars or more for your business, nobody will trust you on your word. And if they do take their money as quickly as you can, but I'm telling you, it never happens. Trust, but verify is the motto of M&A. And and 
if we're looking at this from the buyer's perspective, if they're going to part with that much cash, they want to de-risk that as much as possible. They want to they want to verify that the business, if if it's producing so much money and profit, because a they need to you know in most situations pay back a certain amount of money, and it, it, they're looking for a return on investment. They're looking for security. They're, otherwise, they're just potentially throwing money away at a risk and. It's not about what you do or don't do, Mr. or Mrs. Business Owner. It's just a case of so much money is involved, they need to de-risk that transaction. Yeah, it's it's likely they may be willing to do a big number, but it's after you've shown it for a while. So they may buy the business, essentially buy it for no money down or for you know all of the business is going to be sold over time using the cash flow of the business to pay it off. Uh, you know, that's where they yeah. can get to be a little bit more creative because they have no risk or very little risk. Yeah. So I, I see some of those deals happen off our marketplace. Um, we only yeah. represent clients that have established and growing and profitable companies because our commission is based on the cash at closing. Uh, we take, we have to take massive discounts for earnouts and, and, and other post sale, uh, compensation. So I, I'm a go-getter. I want to. I want to make money. I want to make my client money. So I'm going to go get a big cash offer for a deal. In order to do that, they need to have a growing business with good cash flow, great fundamentals, and uh, we can get a ton of money for them. Okay. So we, we're hearing that one of the big mistakes is they just don't have good records, and and records around the financials that can really hold back a deal big time. We talked about the, the, the valuation formula, if you like. So yeah, you've got some sort of revenue profit number and you've got a multiple. You know, it's pretty obvious what we can do is we can, we can cut expenses and we can increase the revenue and we can adjust the profit. That's one way to in, influence and increase the valuation of the business. We talked about things. We talked about the M side that um, you know, the, a buyer would expect to have in place. And there's no such thing as a standard M. What are some of the things, Nate, in your experience that can really have a significant influence on in increasing the multiple? Because that's what the listeners are really interested in. But yeah. also some of the things that you know, they really must get right so that that M, that's that, that average M, if you like, average multiplier is not discounted. You know, what are the things that are going to rip that, that, the value out of your business? Some, some big ones that are value adds is if the, the client satisfaction for whatever the service or the product, if it's like outstanding, if you have advocates of the business, whether it's a physical product or if it's a service, uh, you could really do yourself a lot of good by having, uh, you know, great reviews, having great branding, having great awareness in the uh, in the world about it where people are raving about it. Uh, it and vice versa, it can really hurt you if clients absolutely hate what it is that you're putting out into the universe. In fact, that's usually a deal breaker. If someone Googles you and the first thing on Google is a customer, uh, you know, some hate on you, some Internet hate on you. Uh, chances are you're not going to close the deal. Um, you need to spend some time, you know, curating your uh, your reputation online, or really, you know, doing a great a great service or having a great product, so people will believe in you. <clears throat> um, uh, Daryl, I got distracted for a second. Remind me, what was the second part of your question? What are the things we're, we're talking about? The things that can really have a big boost ah. on the the end side and and rip the value out of your business. 
transitioning. So having a transition team, having support for the business long term. Remember, buyers want the cash flow that you've represented to them and they want that to grow. They want it in the exact same way it was made before they had their hands on it. So if you've got some staff or you've got uh, infrastructure in place, they want to take the business exactly as it is with no interruptions or no changes. This isn't a Hollywood story where the bobs come in and all of a sudden you know, fire everybody and then expect to keep the business going the way that it was before, you know, and we're not public deals where there's like 10,000 employees. Yeah. That's not, that's not what's happening here. They want the staff that's, that's making the money, uh, you know, to transition over. If you as the business owner are doing the bulk of the work, you better plan to be an employee at least for six to 12 months with the new buyer uh, to, and then to transition and delegate whatever it is that you're doing to them. And you can definitely do yourself a service by delegating out your responsibilities ahead of a sale. So I'd recommend that you spend some time delegating and, and, and having the infrastructure supporting the day in and day out aspects of the business, which looks really, really good to a buyer uh, so that they can take over the business, assuming what all what has transpired for the last six to 12 months can continue to do so and no beats are missed. So it can just like a drum beat can continue to, to cash flow, cash flow, cash flow every month. Those are a couple of big ones, customer satisfaction and transition team. Um, and then lastly, uh, I, I keep harping on it, increasing your cash flow. If, you, if you're um, profitable and you continue to grow your profit, that is the number one de-risking factor and why businesses get larger, a larger amount in their sale. If you grow your business from a million dollars in profit a year to $2 million in profit a year, when you multiply that by four or five, that is a huge increase in exit value. That's not just doubling. You're getting an exponential return on that one million dollar increase yeah so it's it's a lot of the same principles and i guess just applied slightly differently you know, we, we need that predictable revenue if the revenue or income or profit however we're measuring it um profit ideally is is predictable and and the forecast which suggests the forecasts are reliable based on proven performance we need we need clients loyal clients to be coming back and 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 raving about us we need that you know, systemized approach and the management team um, doing a lot of the work and demonstrating that the business isn't reliant on the owners being there, have got their hands in, you know, working in the operations. We need a brand. We, we need a, you know, our, our access to the marketplace and, and have that good brand reputation and can, you know, the systems and platforms to continue to be able to scale the business. We get these things in place and you know, the, the valuation increases by the sounds of it. It like really that. does. Yeah, you know, the M&A is not too sexy. Like if you're starting if you're starting to use AI and like that's your new thing, and if anything, it actually brings mistrust from a buyer. They don't like that your business is using the latest and greatest technology. They don't like that it's like cutting edge. They want to see the fundamentals of the business. They want to see fundamental cash flow. They want to see growth. They want to see all of the things that you know the Rockef- you know the Rockefellers did, and what Vern Harnish preaches about, what Gino Wickman talks about with traction and scaling up, and all those sorts of things. They want the very basic business fundamentals and dare 
Daryl, I'm sure what you focus on with your service is helping people, you know, just get the bones of their company strong, give it like the everything that it needs to be able to to grow and to, and to survive and to thrive. Not necessarily what's the the newest gimmick, what's the newest fad technology, what's going to lead the company to a little blip in sales. That's not what's going to really you know make a buyer salivate over the deal. They want to see a strong business. But that being said. We sell a lot of one-man shop companies where it's re- it is only one person, and that's often for a one million, two million, three million dollar business. There may not be staff. There may be no staff. It could just be the owner and then some contractors or some virtual assistants. And we sell those all day long. But the key is they've started to figure out how to delegate, and they are willing to ride through the transition and the transaction with the buyer for six to 12 months to make sure the buyer can sit in their shoes when they step out of it. Yeah. So the in your, in your experience, Nate, so, so you've described what I would call an earnout or a transition period where they don't get all the money up front you know, because there's a certain amount of risk involved for the buyer. They'll say, I'll give you a bit up front and over the next six or 12 months, we'll, we'll give you the rest of the money and we'll make sure how much, how much of that revenue still profit sticks and um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll risk it that way around. <clears throat> In your experience, how many of the businesses that you sell end up with some sort of earnout ar- arrangement and, and how many of the businesses you know, do pretty close to a complete transaction um, right up front? Almost all of them have some post-sale compensation. Uh, almost none of them have 100% cash at closing. There now we have. I my my uh, average is about 70% of the de- of the enterprise value. Like let's just say it's a million dollar deal. 700,000 of that would be cash at closing if it meets the average of what I've I've done over the last several years. And 300,000 might be some post acquisition compensation. And I like to arrange those as a seller note. So it's like a guaranteed payment, much like seller financing when you sell a house. Um, If I can't get the buyer to agree to that, then I want to try to figure out something else that's like it's nearly guaranteed for my client, but also lets the buyer de-risk it in some way. I'm not a big fan of a traditional earnout where it has to grow by 20 or 25%. And if it does, then you get the $300,000. There's so many factors outside of everyone's control. There's market dynamics, there's supply chain issues, there's, there's all sorts of things. Uh, that could be outside of the control of both the seller and the buyer. Both seller and buyer have to mutually be goal-oriented for the long-term success of the business. If the seller is looking to just cash out and disappear, it's probably not going to sell. Uh, if a buyer is looking to acquire it and like run it into the ground, the seller is probably not going to want to sell it. You know, People can detect this in conversations when you have dozens of conversations over the course of you know three or four months. You'll feel it out. Uh, so to answer your question, yeah, we've got the majority of our transactions have some post-sale compensation, and I will work with my client to structure it in a way that is uh, as near guaranteed as possible, while also giving the buyer some allowance for flexibility around risk factors. I, I like that structure. It's you know, sometimes over here in the UK, we talk about deferred payments, but we're effectively de-risking it for, for both parties, but there's, you know, the some of the earnouts where the, where the owners have to work in the business for two or three years and perform and meet all sorts of criteria, you know, you know there's a lot of risk still on the, the founder of the business. So they, they, they take the risk of building the business and then they've still got ongoing risk post-transaction. 
to me, that's the very definition of not exiting on your terms. If we get the business prepared, we get it structured, we set it up like using all of the principles that you've shared today. You've got all of your, your financials under control. It's, it's a boring business. It's predictable. There's a certain amount of certainty around it. Then it's going to be easier to sell. And the, the big, the big bonus to the, the founders of the owners of the business is that, you know, there, there may be some deferred payments, but there's minimal risk attached to that. That's and exactly right. You've yeah. done everything you can. So I love that. <clears throat> so Nate, we, we've talked about some of the good things, what we can do to prepare the business to get it exit ready. Some of the things we want to avoid that would, would, would reduce the price. Let's assume we've got, you know, everything is in check, is in place. Um, what are some of the things that can happen during the negotiation stage that can kill a deal in, in, you know, that you guys see? Yeah, a big one is 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 hiring the wrong attorney. Uh, if you've got a friend who is, you know, they are quote unquote an attorney, uh, but they're not a, a, a M and A deal or transaction attorney, uh, that's the wrong person to have uh, sitting in the the seat to get through legal. Um, some things that can come up as well is uh, you know, not being flexible around reps and warrants. So you're going to, as a seller, you're going to make representations and warranties that your taxes have been paid. Your sales, ta if you're selling e-commerce, you've been paying sales tax in all the right municipalities. Um, you're going to make representations that there's no litigation. There's, there, there's a, a variety of things that you're going to make representations that the buyer needs to have assurances that you're true to your word before they can take over the running of the business uh, and not have to worry about all of that. And sometimes this can get sticky, uh, but fortunately, there's some pretty fancy um, reps and, uh, and warrants insurance now for these lower middle market and small business deals that can take some of the onus off of this this part that can get a little bit antagonistic because uh, a seller or a buyer may say, we want to hold 10 or 20% of the deal uh, for a year in escrow. And then pay it out because we don't know, we don't believe, we don't have faith that everything that you've said is true. And now you can go and for like, I think it's like $20,000 per million, you can get reps and warrants insurance and not have to suspend that million dollars or whatever it is uh, for a year. I'd much rather, you know, spend or for, forfeit or pay for 10 or 20 grand. And usually I can negotiate the buyer and seller to, to split it um, so that you can get the full amount of money that you were thinking you're going to get due at closing instead of waiting another year for it and making that yet another deferred payment on top of the 30% of deferred payments maybe that you had negotiated from the get-go. So skimping on, um, I guess, expertise around helping you uh, with this usually most significant transaction of your life. Yeah, yeah. For every client I've interviewed over the last, uh, all but one, uh, over the last several years, my exit with them, this has been the biggest liquidity event of their life. One has had a significant amount of experience and he sold a division of his company. Uh, and this wasn't the biggest deal that he had, but it's darn near close. Uh, so yeah, this is the biggest, probably the biggest transaction of your life up to this point. Hopefully not the last, but when you get to this point, it's just, you know, think to yourself, if you have, you know, a, a $250,000 Lamborghini that you're selling and something's wrong with the engine and you take it to uh, Jiffy Lube to have them change the oil and not truly assess the engine and take care of it in a delicate way and make sure that it's properly maintained, 
oof, you are going to have a world of hurt later if someone were to acquire that and not think that they got what they were expecting and come back hunting you with a lawsuit. Yeah, that's a good example. Mate, look, you've, you've shared a lot of knowledge. Look, I, one of the things I ask all the guests on the, on the show is we, we've covered a lot of ground in the last 30 minutes or so. What's, what's the highlight? What's the key message you would love listeners to take away from, from your tips today? You know, I was an entrepreneur. I've been a serial entrepreneur for 20 years. And it wasn't until my children challenged me with, Dad, why am I spending so much time working? Why, why aren't we spending more time hiking? Why aren't we camping? Why aren't we spending more time together? Where I realized that I really need to make a change in my life. And I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I wanted passive income. I wanted you know cash flow to get me out of the rat race. And here it is, you know, 15 years later, I wasn't working a job. I had made my own job. And I reported to myself and I reported to every client that I sold a vitamin to. And I had built uh, a tremendous amount of time and effort around this and was working 60, 70 hours a week. And it was at that kind of gut-wrenching moment that I realized that I became an entrepreneur because I wanted more freedom. I wanted more, I wanted more freedom of time and also the wealth to be able to enjoy that, that time to go and do fun things with my loved ones. So I would encourage anyone that's listening to this to remember, why did you become an entrepreneur in the first place? And what's going to get you there? I'll challenge you to think that an exit of your business is probably, if not the most monumental opportunity for a liquidation event in your life that you can then use for passive income. You can invest in real estate. You can take advantages of the market fluctuations. It could be the financial markets, cryptocurrency, whatever it is that is your, your juice, your passion. You can use that on your second iteration of making millions that I would encourage you to be thinking about. But I can tell you, you will not get the time and the, and the value and the, and the freedom of spending all of your, your waking moments with your loved one when you're running your baby, your, your heart and soul, your business, uh, 60, 80 hours a week. So that, that was true for me. And I think that that would resonate with some of your audience members. And if you're in that situation and you want to know how much your business is worth, I'd love to tell you how much it's worth. Brilliant. And, uh, yeah, remember, remember why you started it. I love that, Nate. Thank you so much for sharing your exit insights with us today. Thanks, Daryl.